Hello everybody uh, and Kiora. In today's session, we will be focusing on the implementation of the changes in the Austria's Guide to Run Design, uh, parts 4 and 4A. Um, we have almost 1,300 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, um, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session together with Albert Wong um, from Main Roads Western Australia. Albert was the project manager for this project and he will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I'd like to start uh, by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Australia is based in Sydney uh, and so today I'm on the land of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to um, eldest past, present and emerging and the deep and ongoing connection to the land. Um, a little bit about Austroads, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, the project that we're focusing on today was delivered under, um, under the Road Safety and Design Programme, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A bit of housekeeping. The session will run for about 60 minutes um, and after the presentations we will have some time to answer your questions. The slides um, can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. To view the updated guides uh, please scan the QR code that you can see on the slide or use the provided URL. We have also included the links to the guide in the welcome message. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. Um, if your question relates to any particular slide, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So um, leaving the session, closing your browser and rejoining again via your email registration usually helps. Um, this session has been recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, uh, Malcolm Mark and Noel O'Callaghan. Malcolm is a senior technology leader at the Australian Road Research Board. He specializes in road design, road safety and um, traffic engineering with experience within state and local government. Noel O'Callaghan is a principal professional leader at the Australian Road Research Board. He specializes in um, road design with extensive experience in the South Australian Transport Department. So welcome to our presenters and over to you Noel. I'm there. I'm there. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, Katarina, and welcome back to everybody for the uh, for this the 
presentation of um, webinar two in this series about the, the part thoughts of the guide to road design. Sorry. So uh, this is the second webinar of the four-part four webinar series. Webinar one, uh, which we did uh, last week, was provided an overview of the project and the updates to the guide and the design vehicle turning templates and provided some existing fundamentals to the road design as well. Uh, webinar two will uh, today we'll provide details on key updates to parts four, which is titled Intersections and Crossings General, and part 4A, which is titled Unsignalised and Signalised Intersections, and how to use these new inclusions. Um, coming up in, in the series, um, webinar three will provide details on key updates to part 4B, which is about roundabouts, and that includes the mini roundabouts and cyclist treatments, for example. And also updates to part 4C interchanges and how, and so the interchanges looks at ramps, uh, site distances and grade separated interchanges. And webinar four will provide an overview of these updates to the design vehicle and turning templates guide. Uh, today's webinar is an overview of the of the key updates and changes to parts four and four a. So our our key uh, target audience is uh, road designers, project managers, and traffic management practitioners. But and, and if you're not in that category, you're still welcome to stay on board and and learn about these guides. Uh, the project team, um, the the ARB project team was led by Madeleine Beckerback and supported by myself and, and Malcolm and also managed by Albert Wong from Main Roads Western Australia. So, so that's the project team. The, then there was a working group consisting of Albert, uh, Richard Fanning from Victoria and Bernard Worthington from Transport and Main Roads in Queensland. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the Austroads Road Design Task Force for their input, guidance and direction throughout the project. So they're listed there. So Michael Neustig, as Katarina has mentioned before, is the, is the manager of the program. Albert Wong from Main Roads Western Australia uh, led the project. And um, we also had Bernard from Queensland and Richard from Victoria as part of the working group. Um, uh, Jade Hogan from Transport for New Zealand, Colin Bolden from uh, DIT in South Australia, Sam H from the Northern Territory, Stephen Hare from Canberra, Michael Hogan from Blacktown City Council, and he was representing LGA, Local Government Association for all of Australia, and James Hughes from the New Zealand Transport Agency. So thanks to all of those for their input.
it was invaluable. Um, in today's session, um, I'm, uh, we're looking at part four. Now, part four is, uh, as it says there, it's intersections and crossings general. So it looks at the, the types of crossings, the intersections that there are, the considerations that you would need to do that, uh, the process um, for designing an intersection, uh, what design pickles you're using, and then it gets into some more detail about uh, public transport at intersections, uh, property access and meeting and openings, pedestrian crossings, uh, cyclist crossings and rail crossings. Rail crossings we touched on at, in the webinar one, uh, gave some detail on that. But today um, we're looking for part four, we're looking mainly at the pedestrian crossings because that that area was the biggest change in this in this guide. So pedestrian crossings. Uh, first up is this uh, pedestrian refuge. Uh, pedestrian refuge al allows a road crossing to be undertaken in two stages, which reduces pedestrian delay. Uh, so there's an island in the middle of the road, and so that gives the pedestrian refuge in the middle as they're making the crossing. So they can they can just look at the traffic from one direction, stop in the middle, and then and cross in the other direction. Um, this uh, this diagram is based on the Australian standard, the manual for traffic control devices. And the, it's an example of the, the signs, et cetera, that you, you could use for that. In the guide, there's, um, there's some uh, detailed instructions on, on the dimensions that you need to use, uh, including the width, the length, uh, how much, how much uh, parking restriction you need to provide either, either way and the, the signs and lines that you could use. But again, um, it's, it's generalised and for the signs and lines, you need to refer to the jurisdiction requirements for whatever area you're working in. I, yeah, I'll just go back to that. Um, so that that diagrams in the guide. Uh, there's some extensive notes uh, attached to that that diagram, so it gives you some instructions on where you would use all those dimensions. And there's also an, a table attached as well to to look at the considerations. So you need to look at all those those three things when you're looking at a pedestrian refuge for guidance. Another aspect of pedestrian crossings is the median crossing. So this is uh, a gap in the median that allows pedestrians to go through it. So there's some examples here. The, the diagram says that the median crossing for pedestrian operated signals with the straight crossing and for um, with a stagger with, with uh, signals. However, these these can be used without signals. So uh, these these diagrams are, if you like, a generalised 
um, example of median crossings, uh, how you can use them. And then uh, there's a couple of slides further on that show how they would fit in with the signalised crossings. Again, it allows the crossing to be undertaken in two stages. And the considerations are the crossing width, the crossing length, the roadway width, the footpath width, the crosswalk lines. So, for example, the crosswalk lines, uh, as crosswalk lines, as mentioned there, and the hold lines for drivers, uh, some jurisdictions require them, others don't. So you need to refer to that as well uh, when, you're, when you're designing. So all of those dimensions are given there. And again, there's a diagram. Uh, there's the, the, the dimensions given there, but there's also a table attached, which will give you more detail of when you, when you can use that. Uh, another aspect of uh, pedestrian crossings is the curb extension. Uh, so this is where the, uh, it's also called a curb build out and, or a curb outstand. So this is where the curb um, is extended out into the carriageway. And that, so that shortens the crossing distance across there. It also allows the pedestrian to stand uh, at a higher vantage point uh, so that they can see and be seen by the by the traffic um, and often it it's incorporated in a road that has parking so you, you you would have parking there for example so that generally dictates the the, the depth of the of the of the uh, build out of the curb extension. So usually around the two to two and a half metres, which is the width of a parking bay. Um, and again, uh, there's the diagram, and there's some notes, and there's a table explaining those things. Now you need to, uh, need to be fairly particular about the definitions here because we're calling calling various things depths and lengths so, and widths. So you need to get your head around what that actually means because some of it might be counterintuitive. But uh, the dimensions are all there. And as I said, there's a table there as well. Another form of pedestrian crossing is the continuous footpath treatment across a side road. So here we have it. It's virtually a raised platform at the entrance to the side street. So that gives uh, pedestrians priority across that side street. And um, it's, it's ramped up either side of that, of that crossing. Uh, so it's used where there's low volumes of vehicles on a minor road, local road access and very few heavy vehicles. Uh, heavy vehicles are a, a, an issue going over those humps. Uh, and it, it provides a transition from one, one side footpath to the other. And so ideally on that side street, so usually used on side streets which have low volume and ideally that traffic would be one way on that side street.
also with uh, pedestrian crossings um, is the curb ramp. So uh, uh, this is not not new, uh, and it's uh, based on the Australian standard uh, 1428, which is the design for access and mobility. But there's some important dimensions on that. For example, the maximum grade gradient is uh, 8% on that ramp. Uh, that's the desirable grade. It can go up to 10 or even 12% if you're very restricted and if the, the rise isn't, isn't too great. Um, so it gives all the other uh, dimensions on that, um, including the landing where the pedestrians move from the ramp <clears throat> between the ramp and the footpath um, and, and how it fits in with the gutter. And again, it's important that there be no, there be no lip between the, the edge of the ramp and the gutter loop. Another form of pedestrian crossing is the zebra crossing. Um, most people are familiar with this. Uses white stripe on the road to communicate the drivers they must give way to the best pedestrians. So unlike the other crossings, this is a this is a legal requirement. So pedestrians have right of way on this crossing. If a if a pedestrian steps onto the crossing, vehicles must slow down or stop to allow them to pass. Uh, it's suited to low speed environments, that is say less than 50 kilometres an hour in residential streets usually, uh, and shopping centres and car parks, and can be used with curb extensions on the, on the curbside, or with refuges uh, depending on, on the width of the roadway. So again, uh, there's some dimensions there, but uh, some some jurisdictions use uh, holding lines, for example. Um, so you need, and again, you need to tune into what the local requirements are for that that crossing. Uh, the wombat crossing is a variation, if you like, on the on the zebra crossing. Um, so there's a raised platform. Uh, that holds that holds the zebra crossing. Um, it serves the purpose of slowing the vehicles down, like a speed hump, but also increases the visibility of pedestrians using the crossing. Uh, platform length uh, generally, so length, uh, we're talking longitudinally along the road. The length is uh, six meters, but so that includes the ramp. So that uh, diagram doesn't quite show it correctly, it should be including the ramp of, of six metres. That six metres can be increased if there are heavy vehicles or public transport that use the ramps because uh, that, that makes it easier for them to traverse the, the ramp. Again, uh, holding lines, but again, that depends on the jurisdiction on, on what you need and also where the, the no stopping requirements are. Um, pedestrian operated signals. Now this is a variation on what we saw previously in the other slides, the median crossing, and just shows how that fits in with where the signalised crossings. 
And again, there's some dimensions there, and there's there's a table to say what those those uh, crossings are. There's a there's a note here that there's a high cost of implementation. That's actually putting signals in is a generally a high cost, but if it's if there's a warrant for it, well, certainly is a a, um, a safe way of getting pedestrians across the road. Another variation on pedestrian crossings is the children crossings. Now this is um, this is the Australian uh, interpretation of it, uh, generally called an emu crossing. Uh, it's it's placed within the school zone, and so there's a speed limit of 25 when children are present, and it's activated by by having the the flags up. Um, uh, another form is the koala crossing, which um, is like the emu crossing, but it has a set of flashing lights that indicates when the crossing is in operation. Those those lights indicate a 25 kilometer an hour speed limit. And again, so these, when the flags are up or the or the lights are flashing, that's a requirement for um, vehicles to give way to to pedestrians. Otherwise, it's the, the pedestrians themselves need to give way to traffic. Uh, in New Zealand, it's called a Kia crossing. Uh, so there's no zebra markings. Incorporates devices to improve their safety. Uh, they've got temporary signs and they have uh, what's called a school patrol, which are um, uh, could be uh, kids, but of course also could be an adult with that patrol operating those stop signs. So they they control the kids going across the road, but they also activate those signs when they want the vehicles to stop. So they're called Kia crossings in New Zealand. Uh, some considerations about signalised intersections. Um, so. They include a marked foot crossing across approaches between the stop lines and the intersecting road, so most common. Uh, can be a pedestrian crossing marked across left turn roadways, and we'll show an example of that in the next slide. And an, an exclusive pedestrian phase in the signals where all traffic stops and uh, pedestrians can cross across or diagonally across that intersection. That's a, a generally called a scramble crossing. Used to be called a barn dance. I'm not sure if that's what they still call it in America, but in Australia called the scramble crossing. Um, Signalised intersection considerations. So pedestrian crossing. So this is with a, a left turn slip lane. You can um, you can uh, emphasise that the pedestrians have right away by putting in the zebra crossing. Um, so there can be a zebra crossing like that, or it can be a raised crossing uh, like that. So virtually like a wombat. So again, uh, gives dimensions of when that when that can be used. Um, the preferred um, layout. Well, depending on the traffic, is not to have not to have the slip lane at all, uh, just to let the traffic 
uh, turn turn left at the signals. But if there is if there is a significant left turn movement, uh, this is the situation. But um, that that is a, a risky thing for uh, pedestrians. So consideration needs to be given to put in these uh, these crossings to emphasise that the vehicles need to give way when they're using those left turn slip lanes. So pedestrian crossings, so just some considerations. Uh, the potential issue between uh, PEDS and turning movements at signalised intersection and resolved through signal phasing. So we just mentioned that about turning vehicles, how, how they can be a problem. Uh, pedestrian storage areas provide, for, and you need to provide for mobility impaired pedestrians uh, using devices such as wheelchairs but also people with prams and bikes and uh, adequate space and uh, all weather paths provided at bus and tram stops. So uh, those considerations need to be need to be considered in uh, pedestrian storage areas. Uh, footpaths need to be designed easily to be easily negotiated by pedestrians, including those with mobility impairment and um, references made to those those Australian standards, and also the guide to Part 6A, which is uh, uh, paths for cycling and walking. So there's some more details within that within that guide. Um, so just and also pedestrian fences, bollards, and barriers, and they can be used to uh, virtually direct. Um, pedestrians where they should be crossing. So quite often used at school crossings where you want the kids to just use the crossing or even at roundabouts sometimes where you want the, the pedestrians to cross at a certain point. So those pedestrian barriers need to be used. I'll now hand over to my colleague Malcolm Mack who will take us through unsignalised and signalised intersections, that is part 4A. Thank you, Noel. Um, yeah, as Noel said, I'm now going to run through um, the key updates that were made to the Guide to Road Design Part 4A. Um, just a bit of an overview on Part 4A. So um, it provides practitioners with guidance uh, on the detailed geometric design of all at-grade intersections, excluding roundabouts. Um, Part 4A covers information on the types of signalised and unsignalised intersections, um, as well as their use. Um, it covers intersection layout design process um, and factors to be considered, and also covers uh, detailed geometric design requirements for various um, intersection types. Okay, so now getting into um, some of the, the updates. So starting off with site, distance. So um, site distance is a, a key 
consideration in the location and design of intersections, um, with intersection safety performance being largely dependent on it. Um, the types of site distance that must be provided in the design of all intersections includes uh, approach site distance, safe intersection site distance, and minimum gap site distance. Um, up, up on the screen here, we've got safe intersection site distance, which is the minimum site distance which should be provided on the major road at any intersection. Um, it provides sufficient distance for a driver of a vehicle on the major road to observe a vehicle on the minor road approach moving into a collision situation. Um, for example, uh, a vehicle that might have stalled across the traffic lanes. Um, and it allows the vehicle on the major road to decelerate to a stop before reaching the collision point. Um, safe intersection site distance is viewed between uh, two points to provide intervisibility um, between the driver, uh, the drivers uh, both on the major and, and minor leg and the, the, uh, the corresponding vehicles. Um, it's measured from a driver eye height of 1.1 metres above uh, the road to 1.25 metres above the road, which represents uh, a driver seeing the top of the other vehicle. Um, it assumes the driver on the minor road is situated at a distance of 7 metres uh, or a minimum of 5 metres from the conflict point on the major road. This is the text that was in um, pre previous editions of uh, part 4A, um, and as we can see on the screen here, um, we've got two figures. Um, the figure at the top used to be in the previous editions, and as we can see, the uh, sort of uh, distance that the vehicle is on on the minor leg didn't quite match up with what's in the text, um, which is shown in the second dot point there. So. Um, as part of uh, this new edition, we've updated the figure to match the text. So it's seven metres or a minimum of five metres back from the conflict point. Um, another key uh, site distance that we've um, made some updates to is uh, pedestrian site distance. So. There's, there's, a, there's two key site distance requirements at pedestrian crossing facilities. Firstly, approach site distance um, and crossing site distance. Um, during uh, our working group consultation, um, it was identified that um, there was a need for further clarification um, in terms of um, the application of pedestrian site distance requirements, um, specifically when um, crossing site distance or approach site distance should be applicable um, and further consideration was given to whether crossing site distance um, required an additional component um, to account for um, decision making and startup and clearance um, time. So approach site distance uh, ensures that uh, drivers approaching drivers are aware of the presence of a pedestrian cr crossing facility uh, it is important that this uh, line of sight is not obstructed as it ensures that even if there's no pedestrian on the crossing, the driver should be aware of the crossing by seeing the associated pavement markings and other cues. Uh, and therefore, they would then be alerted to take the appropriate action if a pedestrian does step onto the crossing. Crossing site distance ensures that the pedestrian can see approaching traffic uh, in sufficient time 
to judge a safe gap and cross the roadway and also ensures a clear view for approaching drivers to sight pedestrians waiting to cross the road. Um, so as part of this project, uh, some, some additional guidance is being provided on when these should be, uh, these requirements um, should be looked at. So uh, approach site distance should be provided at all formal marked pedestrian crossings. Um, and crossing site distance should be provided at crossings uh, where the pedestrian does not have the priority or where the pedestrian does have the priority but must be sighted by uh, approaching traffic in order for the approaching traffic to give way. For example, a zebra crossing. Um, it's also desirable for crossing site distance to be provided at um, signal controlled crossings uh, if, if there you know, ever happens to be a, a signal failure. Um, so crossing site distance should be provided between um, the driver eye height uh, of the approaching vehicle, um, which is 1.1 metres above the, the road and a pedestrian waiting to cross the road. Um, we've provided some guidance of where that pedestrian might be uh, positioned um, waiting to cross the road um, and, and we've, we've put in some guidance that that's um, 1.6 metres from the pavement edge or the, or the, the kerb line. The pedestrian eye height should be taken as 1.07 metres, which represents the lower bound of the range applicable to a person in an A80 wheelchair. So um, up on this slide here, we've got the crossing site distance calculation um, and highlighted in pink and underlined is the additional component which has been added for uh, pedestrian startup and, and clearance time being three seconds. Um, it's noted that this may not be achievable in, in constrained situations and um, uh, judgment um, and uh, an assessment of risk should be undertaken um, as to whether that three second uh, startup and end clearance time is to be omitted. Um, Another site distance issue that we looked at as part of this project was holding line setback. Um, so the holding line is typically placed in um, prolongation of the curb line or uh, edge line. Um, however, it may be set back where there's a, a problem with the design vehicle or, or uh, check vehicle overrunning the holding line, um, or if it is uh, desired to hold vehicles back some distance from the intersecting roadway. Um, which yeah might be particularly applicable for uh, la larger heavy vehicles. Um, so the setback needs to be balanced such that uh, site distance is not negatively impact impacted to create a safety issue, but at the same time the needs of all road users are met. So there's a balance there between um, yeah the site distance uh, site distance requirements. Um, so. Uh, not setting that holding line too far back um, and also allowing um, the manoeuvres of turning vehicles not to um, overrun uh, any holding holding lines that might be present. Okay, now touching on um, auxiliary lanes. So uh, during our literature review, um, it was identified that um, table 5.2 
shown up on, on this slide here, does not provide uh, decel requirements for design speeds greater than 110 kilometers per hour. Um, and also uh, table 5.5 in part 4a, which is not shown here, um, doesn't provide acceleration requirements for design speeds greater than 110 kilometers per hour. So um, in one of the project workshops we had with the road design task force, um, it was resolved that we would incorporate a formula um, in the guide for designers to be able to calculate the, uh, the required uh, deceleration length for design speeds greater than 110 kilometers per hour um, and that no changes uh, would be made to the acceleration length table um, as the table already covers the 85th percentile speed of 130 kilometer per hour um, design speed. So um, the formulas are shown uh, on this slide uh, and include calculation of deceleration to a stop condition um, so that, that first formula um, and also deceleration to a specific exit design speed, the, the formula at the bottom. Uh, once calculated, um, the, the decel length um, should also be uh, increased uh, or reduced uh, based on the grade of the road as you normally would using table 5.3. Um, so talking about truck acceleration lanes now, um, so the current guidance within um, part 4a uh, indicates that the speed differential between trucks and the merging through traffic needs to be considered when designing uh, acceleration lanes. Um, it's indicated that the speed of accelerating trucks should be no less than 20 kilometers per hour um, than the speed of the merging uh, through traffic, uh, particularly on designated truck routes, um, where speed differentials are you know, greater than 30 kilometres an hour, consideration should be given to extending the acceleration lane. Um, and then if this isn't achievable, the guide indicates options for consideration, um, being either the provision of a, a basic left turn or a high entry angle uh, channelised left turn treatment, um, or uh, or the second option being um, providing an acceleration lane length for cars. So um, <clears throat> it was raised uh, in some of the working group um, consultation that the uh, material in, in the guide is a bit un unclear and then provides some conflicting information. Um, so it, you know, it says that while you know truck acceleration lane lengths uh, should be provided in ideal circumstances um, when you're in a constrained situation, um, which is probably the majority of the, of, um, the time, um, we would then design for acceleration lane lengths for cars. So um, during our consultation with the uh, road design task force, um, <clears throat> the following items were raised. So um, when in a constrained location, the preference should be for the truck driver to assess the gap and pull out onto the major road where the acceleration lane cannot meet the required length. A shorter than desirable uh, length may be considered under uh, the extended design domain with a risk assessment. A shorter than desirable acceleration lane length can lead to unsafe situations with vehicles unable to judge the speed of trucks. Um, one of the disadvantages of 
an acceleration lane that's um, shorter than desirable is the ambiguity for approaching through traffic that does not know uh, doesn't know how the truck driver is going to behave, um, particularly if they can't see where the acceleration lane finishes if it's blocked by the um, truck itself. Um, and lastly, during the consultation, um, it was raised that considerations are required for trucks going uphill as it is impossible to reach the required speed. However, the length of the parallel lane can give them more time to speed up uh, if it's you know, uh, provided and, and might be uh, less than the desirable length. So um, with those items being raised, a new section has been created in Appendix A, which provides extended design domain guidance for truck acceleration lanes. So some of the material in Section 5 has uh, moved over to Appendix A. Um, so as mentioned in the last slide, the two options um, to address uh, the situations where we can't achieve a um, truck acceleration lane length is to provide the BAL or the CHL treatment or an acceleration lane uh, for cars. So um, although the BAL and CHL treatments result in slow moving heavy vehicles on the through road, where the traffic volume on the road uh, and the number of trucks entering is not high, it may be relatively easy for through drivers to perceive the slow movement of these vehicles uh, and, to, uh, and to slow for them. Alternatively, where traffic volumes on the road and the number of trucks entering are high, it might be preferable to provide an acceleration lane in order to establish the presence of the entering truck on the major road. Even though a higher than desirable speed differential between the trucks and cars may occur near the merge area. Uh, one of the major disadvantages of a, of a shorter than desirable acceleration lane is the ambiguity um, for the drivers on the through uh, the through traffic uh, to judge the truck merge movement, um, particularly if the sight distance of the merge area is obscured. Uh, so this should be optimised to ensure the lane ends at a location where the sight distance of the merge is adequate. Um, another aspect to consider is the grade of the road, which affects the vehicle's ability to accelerate. Um, where vehicles will be travelling uphill after turning onto the through road, um, yeah, consideration should be given to providing an accel acceleration lane if, even if it's shorter than desirable, which allows the heavy vehicle some length to build up some speed. So a risk assessment should be undertaken when considering an acceleration lane that's shorter than desirable, um, should take into account traffic volumes um, and percentage of heavy vehicles, um, which would affect uh, exposure. Um, look at things like site distance, um, safe intersection site distance and merge site distance, and also the potential speed differential. Um, there's been a inclusion of an S-lane treatment in um, the right turn treatment section of part 4A. Um, an S-lane treatment at an intersection converts three through lanes into two through lanes with a right turn bay. It needs to be highlighted that the use of S-lane treatments should only be considered for retrofit uh, in constrained circumstances. Um, some of the advantages of an S-lane are uh, lane changing by three vehicles is reduced. Um, we might have a lower incidence of rear end collisions um, involving right turning vehicles. 
um, and it might even reduce travel times. Um, as we can see up on the screen here, there's, there are some disadvantages, um, including um, the creation of merge conflicts um, where three lanes are reduced to two, um, and there can be problems for cyclists where, where this merge is occurring. Um, during a review by the Road Design Task Force, uh, feedback was received that Part 4A lacks guidance on auxiliary right turn treatments or um, AUR. So the AUR, AUR treatment is an unchannelized right turn with an additional through lane for through traffic to bypass the vehicle waiting to turn right. Um, as documented in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6, there are safety concerns regarding the use of uh, the AUR treatment, particularly when compared to a channelized treatment. So as such, some jurisdictions have ceased the installation of AUR treatments. Um, however, some jurisdictions uh, may approve the use of an AUR based on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, these might be Main Roads Western Australia and the Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics in Northern Territory. Um, so they might consider it if, if supported with comprehensive traffic and, and geometric assessments in place to ensure the, the use of an AUR won't compromise road safety. Um, and yeah, the relevant uh, jurisdictional design criteria should be met. Um, so a, a new section's been included in Part 4A uh, to cover off on anyone that is designing for an a AUR. Um, offset rural channelised left turn treatment. So um, Queensland supplement um, to part 4A provides details on an offset rural channelised left turn treatment, um, which has now made its way into the Austroads guide. Um, so where, <clears throat> when there are a significant number of vehicles, um, particularly heavy vehicles, making that left turn from the major road of the intersection, <clears throat> this can re restrict sight distance um, for vehicles waiting to turn out of the minor road. Um, so in this situation, offsetting the le left turn lane from the adjacent through lane on the minor road improves sight distance for vehicles uh, waiting to turn out of the minor road. In particular, sight distance to vehicles uh, following a left turning vehicles can be substantially improved. Um, an offset left turn lane should therefore be considered at an intersection where sight distance past these left turning vehicles may improve intersection safety. Um, some of the factors that uh, may warrant the use of an offset uh, channelised left turn include um, high proportion of of, um, of vehicles on the major road, uh, high proportion of or number of vehicles, um, in particular heavy vehicles turning left from the major road, um, capacity of the turning movements from the minor road and resultant delays to vehicles um, and, and intersection geometry and sight lines. Um, so just to recap on the extended design domain, um, Appendix A provides EDD values for intersection design criteria. These are values outside of the normal design domain that through research or um, operating experience, particular road agencies have found uh, to provide a suitable solution in constrained situations, um, particularly at uh, brownfield sites. Um, EDD may be considered when reviewing the geometry of uh, existing intersections. New intersections are being retrofitted on existing roads in constrained locations, uh, improving the standard of 
existing intersections in constrained locations or building temporary intersections. Um, so the, use, the decision to use EDD should not be taken lightly. Um, and up on this screen here, we've just highlighted the, the new inclusions in um, the EDD appendix, which are the truck acceleration lanes and the S-lane turn treatment. So now I'm just going to provide a summary of the webinar um, presented today. So Noel took us through the major changes to part four um, in terms of pedestrian crossings and went through a series of different um, pedestrian crossing types um, and different design criteria for those. Um, I then took us through the changes to part 4A. Um, we went through um, updates to site distance um, criteria, including safe intersection site distance um, and crossing site distance. We then talked about um, the deceleration length formulas um, and also new guidance on uh, truck acceleration lanes where um, we are unable to meet uh, desirable uh, lengths. And then we went through uh, new inclusions for right turn treatments, being the S-lane treatment and the AUR, which has been re-included, and also left turn treatments, um, including the offset uh, rural um, channelised left turn treatment. So up on the screen here, we've got a QR code if you are interested in accessing the guides. So um, just scan that and you can access the new part four and 4A. I'm now going to hand over to Albert, who's going to moderate our Q&A session today. Thank you, Malcolm. Regarding the question, the first question that we are going to discuss is regarding the revised SISD guidance. So this is regarding slide 29. Can you confirm if the point you need to measure from point of conflict is measured from the nearest travel lane to the minor approach on a multi-land road? So, yeah, it might depend on the configuration. I guess looking at um, the figure on the screen, if that was a um, multi-lane major road, um, you might have a couple of conflict points there being uh, a vehicle that might have stalled in, in each of the lanes. So you might then check uh, safe intersection site distance for um, all of the conflict points. Um, but most likely the um, lane closest to the minor road is, is probably the the sort of worst case that you might be looking at, but yes, there might be um, multiple conflict points that you are wanting to ensure that you have a appropriate site, uh, safe intersection site distance for. Thank you. On page 14, why there is no guidance on the minimum and maximum traffic land width? No, did you want to take that one? I can, 
I can answer that. Um, uh, yeah, there are there are some suggested uh, widths in there. So within the within the guide itself, there's there's a series of notes, and it and it gives some indication of what you can use. But uh, a refuge can be used in a number of different uh, occasions. So it can it could be used on a on a multi-lane road for for example, uh, or it could be used in a, a very narrow road, road. So there are some some minimum requirements, but there is uh, there is also a requirement to say if you've got cyclists along there, you you need to provide at least I think it's about four meters between, uh, clearance between the the refuge and the curb line. So yes, there is some guidance there. Yes, slide seventeen. Does this treatment give rise to potential safety issues with confusion over pedestrian vehicle priority? What signage and line marking is recommended? Yeah, uh, yes, again, I, I, uh, I'm of the opinion that it could be. It could uh, cause some confusion as to who, uh, who's got right of way. And in fact, uh, we've made a note that in uh, in New Zealand, uh, the pedestrian doesn't have right of way over that. So uh, yes, that needs to be considered as part of this uh, implementation. Uh, that you need to need to stipulate quite clearly uh, who's got who's got right of way. Uh, so you would need probably need to supplement that with some warning signs at least. So the warning sign that says uh, the vehicles must give way to pedestrians, for example, uh, should be used in that. So yeah, I, I agree with the question. It could it it could lead to confusion. So you need to be very careful on the implementation of it. Okay, thank you. No, uh, same. Same questions on slide 17. Was there any consideration given to how roadway stormwater flows at raised crossing treatments on minor roads should be handled when retrofitting crossing standards? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, that's, that is going to introduce uh, a drainage problem on there so and i think i think in the guide we say yeah drainage needs to be considered but there's no uh there's no um examples of what you could do but um yeah that certainly needs to be considered in in that instance and uh, especially if especially if the uh the drainage on the side street is heading towards the main road you know you'll need to Need to capture that before you get to the the, the race platform. Yes, slides on that as yep. well. <clears throat> um, might also be good to just um, reinforce um, uh, referring to uh, the Part Five series, which is um, the the drainage series as well. Yeah. Thank you. Slide uh, number 22, 
this is an interesting one regarding the school zone speed. So school yes. zones aren't 25 kilometer per hour in Queensland. <laughs> and I've got a few comments regarding uh, the speed zone as well. 40 kilometers in Victoria. Should there be yes. a consistency, you know, uh, adopted in speed limits countrywide? Um, yes, I can. I can answer that too. Yes, I, I agree. Yes, in in so in South Australia, uh, where there's a school zone, uh, the speed limit is 25. But I understand in the rest of the country, it's it's 40 kilometres an hour. Uh, but uh, that that is compounded by how people define a school zone. For example, on on main roads in, uh, in most states, uh, the school zone school zone applies, so people need to do 40 kilometres an hour. Um, in South Australia, uh, what would normally happen is that they put in a signalised um, pedestrian crossing on that main road, so there would be no there would be no speed limit. So the twenty, the twenty-five would apply to the side roads, but but not to the main roads. But yeah, I I agree there needs to be some consistency across Australia as to how this is applied. But certainly the the Emu crossing uh, would generally only be used on the on the minor roads on the on the side roads. Thank you. Um, this is a general questions regarding. Um, are all these new pedestrian crossings requirements consistent with all the AGTM uh, pedestrian series? Yeah, so um, uh, a lot of these inclusions that we've made here uh, in the guide to road design um, are consistent with um, updates to uh, the guide to traffic management um, and a lot of them um, have come out of uh, a project that looked at um, pedestrian um, infrastructure um, and did and made updates to the guide to traffic management, and then also provided updates to um, for the guide to road design. So a lot of those have actually come out of a project um, that which focused on the guide to traffic management. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, questions regarding SISD. Is the conflict point assumed to be the centre of the through travel lane? This is currently not clear in the text or diagram, and it seems very open to interpretation. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think it, generally that is taken as the centre of the the travel the travel lane. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Next questions. Little guidance is given to when a truck acceleration lane is required. This would be good to have included graph similar to the auxiliary lane warrant graphs. Any comment on that? Yeah, I'm trying to recall if um, that was a recommendation that came out of this project for 
the guide to traffic management. Um, we might have to uh, go back and look that up. Uh, I can't quite recall off the top of my head if it was or not. We might no. um, yeah, take that one on notice and provide a written response to that one. Thank you. Um, due to time constraint, we can still take one more question. Um, what are the safety concerns with AUR treatments specifically? So, um, I guess because we're not channelizing that um, turn lane, uh, there, there can be an increased risk of, of rear ends um, and ambiguity for through lane drivers. Um, so yeah, a lot of the jurisdictions do not use them. Um, in the guide to traffic management, I think it talks about, um, or maybe it's the guide to road design. One of them talk about, I guess, the, the lengths sort of required for um, an AUR versus a CHRS being quite similar. So um, yeah, that sort of extra line marking providing benefits to guide vehicles around that um, turning vehicle. Yeah. If I can just add, yeah, that, uh, the decision to not favour AURs came from uh, research done in Queensland uh, a fair few years ago, and it was based on accident stats, and and it was it was mainly uh, rear end accidents, people not picking that someone is is turning right from that lane. So um, uh, their research indicated that by putting in a, a sheltered sheltered lane, albeit a, a shortened one, was certainly uh, safer than an AUR. So um, yeah, that's that's where that research came from. Thank you. Um, yeah, again, due to time, um, uh, we for those questions that we did not get through, we will respond to them in writing. And thank you for all attending and hope to see you at the next webinar. And I'm going to hand this back to you, uh, Ekaterina. Thank you. Thanks so much, Albert, and thanks so much, Malcolm and Noel. And as Albert said, we have a number of questions left and we will uh, prepare a written response after today's session. Um, so as you can see on the screen, uh, we have a number of webinars coming up, including the two more sessions in this series. So if you haven't already registered, please go to our website um, and register there. Um, and as soon as we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire um, uh, that will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes um, to provide your feedback. It really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like um, about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Once again, today's webinar has been recorded and we will send you the link uh, to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time.